I'm Dr. Robin Roth. And I'm Dr. Adrian Rosenthal. And together, we are the Booby Docs, our Instagram account where we talk about breast cancer and breast health in an educational and approachable way. We are both fellowship trained breast radiologists who have been best friends since day one of med school. We work together, we mom together, and now we podcast together. Welcome to the Girlfriend's Guide to Breast Cancer, Breast Health, and Beyond. If you or someone you love has been affected by breast cancer, then this podcast is for you. Each episode will sit down with some of the top breast cancer experts and inspiring thrivers to help you navigate through a cancer diagnosis while having some fun along the way. So without further ado, let's be breasties. Nailed it. (laughs) This podcast is not intended for medical advice. Please contact your doctor with any symptoms or concerns that you may be having. Thank you and enjoy the show. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Booby Docs podcast. So today we have a really special episode. Um, Adrian and I just got back from the Society of Breast Imaging Conference in Savannah. We had a great time. We learned a ton. And while we were there, we had the honor of listening to Dr. Daniel Copans give a talk. And he is one of the pioneers in the field of breast imaging. He essentially created the field back in the 70s. Um, and he helped create digital breast tomosynthesis. He made breast conservation therapy possible by inventing the needle localization procedure. And he also remains one of the biggest proponents for breast cancer screening for women in their, in their 40s. So after hearing his great talk, Adrian turned to me and she goes, oh my God, we have to get him on the podcast. And I said, yeah, that's a great idea, but how? And so the next day we were brainstorming, how are we going to make this happen? And I was running over to the conference and I actually ran into him on my way over there. And somehow I miraculously pulled out my elevator speech and I said, we would love to have you on our podcast to talk about why breast cancer screening is so important for women in their 40s. And he was very excited to do it. I will tell you that we recorded this episode outside because we were both being COVID conscious And it was a little bit windy, especially in the beginning. So I apologize for the background noise, but I promise you it gets better throughout the episode. And if you stick with it, you're going to learn a lot. So without further ado, Dr. Daniel Copans. So you are considered the creator and the grandfather of breast imaging subspecialty. Um, What inspired you to realize... We like to say grandparent. Grandparent, that's good. What inspired you to realize that there was a need for this uh, field and this niche? I'm probably not a good example of having the goal and suddenly achieving it, I actually backed into the field. I was the only one in the, in the Department of Radiology at uh, Mass General Hospital um, who agreed to read the mammograms back in 1978. Wow. And uh, I, at that time, uh, I was the low man on the totem pole. The chairman asked me to do it, and I would have done anything. Uh, thought that I would do it for a few years and uh, there would be a cure for breast cancer and I'd want to do something else. And in fact, uh, here we are 40 plus years later and we're way better than we were, but uh, I realized at the time that there was an opportunity to do something about the deaths from breast cancer and so that's how I got into the field. That's incredible. So you're a major defender of screening for women in their 40s, um, especially in the 1990s when the National Cancer Institute tried to make an effort to deny access to women in this age group. Why does screening continue to be important for women in their 40s? Well, I think uh, what what's happened is screening has always been important for women in their 40s. Uh, the randomized control trials, which, as we know from the tragedy of COVID, are the only way to prove that a medical intervention actually has benefit. Uh, 
have shown for years that you save lives by screening women 40 to 74. Mm -hmm. The reason for that uh, age range uh, is that those are the women who participated in the randomized control trials of screening. It doesn't mean that there's no potential benefit for screening women in their 30s, for example. Yes. And it doesn't mean that screening stops working at age 74. It's just those are the ages that we have absolute proof mm -hmm. that screening uh, saves lives. And um, so, uh, you know, I'm, I've been involved in the field and know that you have to work with science and evidence. Mm -hmm. It's not just, oh, I believe this. Mm -hmm. Here are the data. Here's the science that, that proves it. And so those are the ages that we know for absolutely sure you save lives. Now, what's happened is back in the 1960s, mm -hmm. uh, before either one of us was born, mm -hmm. uh, the claim was that you couldn't find breast cancer before it had become systemic. In other words, before it had spread to other parts of the mm -hmm. body. Uh, and a study was done called the Health Insurance Plan of New York, uh, which was done in New York. Mm -hmm. And they randomly assigned um, 32,000 women to be invited to have mammography and clinical breast exam every year for f I think it was five years. And the other half of the women weren't even told there was a study going on. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't do that anymore nowadays. But, but they just what they wanted to see was that if you uh, offered screening and screened women uh, 40 to 64, could you save lives? Mm -hmm. And uh, they showed that you could. Mm -hmm. And so that was the first proof that you could find breast cancer before it had become successfully metastatic. In mm -hmm. other words, before it had spread to other parts of the body and set up shop. And mm -hmm. that's what kills people, unfortunately, right. when it becomes metastatic. So um, based on that, uh, we people started thinking about screening. Uh, unfortunately, the investigators in the Health Insurance Plan of New York study uh, decided, well, breast cancer is hormonally based. Mm -hmm. I mean, mostly women get it. Some men do, but much, much lower rate. So let's look at what hormone effect there is. And so they decided to look at menopause. Mm -hmm. Well, they hadn't collected data on who had gone through menopause and who hadn't. So they chose the age of 50 oh. as the average age of menopause. Mm -hmm. So that is the birth mm -hmm. of the age of 50 as anything. Right. Uh, it has no scientific basis. It was just, let's look at women 40 to 49 and 50 to 64. And what they did when they looked at their data was they saw that for women uh, 50 to 64, it appeared that the, the screen group immediately had fewer deaths. Uh-huh. I mean, basically the next day. And they said, oh, well, you know, it really works for women 50 to 64, but for women 40 to 49, there wasn't an immediate benefit. Mm -hmm. It took about five to seven years before they started seeing fewer deaths. Yeah. When you do periodic screening, what you're doing is hoping, you know, by chance, mm -hmm. essentially, that you will find a cancer early enough so that you will save that woman from dying mm -hmm. later on. Mm -hmm. But it's very unlikely uh, that you're going to find a cancer early enough that it will save her life within two or three years. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, in the HIP, people who should have known better, they said, oh, look, there's an immediate benefit for screening women 50 to 64 yeah. and a delayed benefit for 40 to 49. And when, in fact, the 40 to 49 was what you really would have expected, and mm -hmm. the 50 to 64 made no sense. Right. All that complicated 
talk explains what, where 50 came from. Mm -hmm. There are zero, and I mean big zero, as my teacher in high school used to say, x-ray goose egg zero. Uh -huh. There are no data that support the use of the age of 50 as a threshold for screening. It's just been picked up by people who want to save money, mm -hmm. and they don't tell women this, but they want to save money so let's wait until 50. That way we won't have to pay for screening right. for women in their 40s. And completely neglecting the 40-year-old women Well, they, they completely, you know, they said, oh, well, initially they said, well, it doesn't work as well in women in their 40s because it took five to seven years to see a benefit mm -hmm. when that was what you would expect. I right. Mean, if you were planning a trial, you know it's going to take right. five to seven years because you can't, you, it's unlikely you're going to find the really fast-growing cancers. They're too small when you screen. By the time you screen again, they've already met, become metastatic. Right. So the science uh, was completely against what was done with the data. Yeah. And so that developed age 50 as a threshold. Mm -hmm. And then people who want to limit screening uh, have uh, picked up on that and just expanded it with more misinformation. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we've seen uh, with the last administration. Uh, Kellyanne Conway's alternative facts, mm -hmm. you know, made up facts. <laughs> right. We've had those in breast cancer screening for 40 years. Yeah. They've made stuff up and we've addressed everything they made up, like radiation risk. I don't right. know if you want to talk about that. Mm -hmm. but radiation risk, just for those who are going to turn off the podcast quickly, <laughs> there is no measurable risk from radiation to the breast for women 40 and over. Radiation risk to the breast is when it's developing. And so teenage girls and, and women in their early 20s, I'm not sure you can see girls anymore, but teenagers and women in their early 20s should try not to have radi any radiation yeah. unless they really need it. Right. I mean, if you need uh, chest x-rays, for example, the risk is very, very low. But the risk to the breast is when it's developing. Mm -hmm. Once it's what's called differentiated, it's become a functioning breast, so a full-term pregnancy, or with increasing age, the breast becomes uh, differentiated uh, there are fewer stem cells around, and yeah. stem cells are probably what get affected by radiation. It's safe to get radiated. So if there's no evidence that mammograms will cause breast cancer in anyone uh, after the age of 40, and even the theoretical risk is well below any benefit. Right. And that makes sense that, like, you know, for women who are high risk, like BRCA, you start screening at age 30, you don't, right? That's a much smaller group of right. women. And when you're talking about radiation risk, even that is a statistical right. probability. So if you radiated everyone at age 20, that wouldn't be good. Yeah. But if a woman has a high risk for right. a, a mutation, sure, you want to find her cancer earlier, yeah. the risk to her is, is un, unmeasurable as well because right. it's just such a small number. Right. So for those women listening, you know, and they're confused about when, when should I start screening, how often, what's your biggest argument for starting screening annually at age 40 and not stopping at age 75? Well, the biggest argument is that we we have proof mm -hmm. that you save lives by screening women starting at the age of 40. And a lot of women, uh, th uh, the last time I looked at numbers, there were 30,000 women oh. each year who were diagnosed with breast cancer under the age of 50. Yeah. Uh, and those women have more years of life to lose yes. uh, because they're younger. Uh, and it, it, it makes no sense to say, well, let's not screen women in their 40s, let's wait until 50, and because they're the ones who have the most to lose. Now, there are more, as you go, the other way that 50 has been given um, inappropriate yeah. importance is if you look at the incidence of breast cancer, how many breast cancers are diagnosed each year, mm -hmm. it's very simple to remember one, two, three, four. Mm -hmm. 
when a woman is in her at age 40 she has about one chance in a thousand mm -hmm. of being diagnosed with breast cancer that goes up by a tenth of a percent a year so let's say we let's say we there are 10 women per 10,000 who okay. are going to develop breast cancer at 40. At 41, it's 11. At 42, it's 12. At 43, it's 13, mm -hmm. and so on. By the time you get up to 50, you get two cancers per yeah. uh, 10,000 women. So it just goes up steadily yeah. with increasing age. There's nothing that suddenly happens at right. 50. But if you group the data, so for example, if we group everyone 40 to 49, mm -hmm. I don't know what the average works out to, but it may, may work out to... Um, 13 cancers uh, per thousand, per 10,000 women. It would seem to jump up to say 15 cancers if you group women 50 mm -hmm. to 59 and average them. So you can take a steadily increasing risk mm -hmm. and make it look like a jump suddenly at any age right. by grouping an average. Right. And that's what's been done. The other thing that people do is they group women together and they say, well, women 40 to 49 only have this risk. Well, no goes up with increasing age and it's a steady increase. So right. there's nothing that happens at 50. There's no reason to start at 50 yeah. because the proof has been that you save the most lives starting at 40. Now just to give you another number, um, there were, there, uh, the National Cancer Institute, which is not, not a supporter of screening women mm -hmm. for breast cancer and certainly not in their 40s, be just because there are a, a bunch of older people there who started this whole yeah. debate and or helped maintain this debate and they're just you know they're not going to change their minds um but uh it's been estimated there so national cancer institute supports six groups that do computer modeling mm -hmm. what would happen if this this and this happened because if you have to wait to see what happens you, you know right. it's too late right so the cisnet those are called the cancer intervention surveillance and modeling network um, that's the National Cancer Institute making noise in the background. <laughs> uh, the CISNET models uh -huh. uh, all show that you save the most lives by screening starting at the age of 40. And it's been estimated using those models that if you wait until 50, there will be approximately 100,000 women wow. who are now in their 30s, because mm -hmm. they're going to wait until 100,000 women now in their 30s who will die. Wow. Because they weren't screened in their 40s. Wow. So it's this is not trivial. This right. Is not like a, it seems each year it might be trivial because the vast majority of women don't develop breast cancer right. each year. Right. But if you start adding it up, it becomes, you know, one in eight, as you right. as you know. And, yeah. And um, it, it, it's a real uh, problem. Yeah. And so 40 is the only scientifically based date mm -hmm. or age. Uh, 50, again means yeah. nothing. So I hope women listening to this will realize that if you delay until 50, you run the risk of dying that could right. have been prevented if you started at 40. Right. Are you, are you at your practice seeing a large increase in younger women, younger than 40, coming in with breast cancer? I, you know, I, I always thought that seemed to my, be my impression mm -hmm. over the many years. But when I talk to the people who know, it doesn't seem like there it's gone up i mean i think it's because you really remember the young women and perhaps go, yeah gee, we're not screening until 40 and she's only 30 she's yeah. 38 the incidence of breast cancer in women 35 to 39 is almost unmeasurably different wow. from 40 to 44. there was a, a study at uh, sloan kettering in new york uh -huh. uh, david dershaw and his group years ago where they were screening as we all were 
baseline at 35. Mm -hmm. They were getting mammograms 35 to 39. And they had the same cancer detection yeah. rate in late 30s as in early 40s. The reason I personally don't, and people who are science and evidence-based, yeah. don't argue for late 30s is we don't have the proof. Right. Which you have to have randomized controlled trials for. So but you are yeah, you yeah. are pro like if someone is high risk and then starting like ten years before their first degree Absolutely. relative. Yeah, I mean, I think, <laughs> and also you know, there's been a debate which I find really weird. Mm -hmm. uh, what if a woman has a lump in mm -hmm. her thirties? Mm -hmm. What imaging do you get? And I won't name names, but mm -hmm. a, a supposed expert says, "Oh, well, you get ultrasound. Mm -hmm. You don't need a mammogram." Well, when you look at the data, in fact, the lump itself has to be dealt with. Mm -hmm. Now, you can either, it's actually cheaper and just as easy to put a needle into the lump. Yeah. And if it's got fluid in it, if it's a cyst, which uh -huh. is a, like a balloon with fluid and not cancer, you can draw the fluid out, make the lump go away, and you've made the diagnosis and everybody's right. happy. <clears throat> but if you're going to image, the only reason really to image the breast is to find early breast cancer. Yeah. And so a younger woman, a woman under the age of 40 who has a lump or thickening or something like that, I would absolutely get the mammogram first. Mm -hmm. If she's Certainly if she's 35 or older. And, yeah. and we would do it for women 30, 30 and older. Because right. uh, it's not a huge number of women. It's not like there's a lot of radiation right. involved. The risk is probably not even there from the radiation and yeah. you're not going to do it every year. So we get the mammogram first and you do detect cancer elsewhere mm -hmm. in that breast or in the other breast unsuspected that happens absolutely. not infrequently absolutely yeah. it's about one to two per thousand women uh -huh. so if you're going to image the breast in, a, in a, a what i call a young woman that's the time to get the mammogram right and then you also if you get the mammogram first yeah then you can also if you see something you just bring her an ultrasound once, you can ultrasound the lump, yeah. and you can ultrasound what you found on the mirror. We've heard a lot of like anecdotal stories of women saying that their doctor, they had a lump and they said it was a clogged duct, or they said it was something benign without imaging. Like, I guess, when should patients or women, you know, request imaging if their doctor is not really... My, my thinking, and I don't have date science yeah. this. This is my experience, yeah. not science. Uh, anyone 30 and older, who has a lump should have it pursued. I agree. Because breast cancer, it's, it's, it's still rare among women in their 30s, but it's not unheard of. That's right. And um, in their 20s, mm -hmm. again, I've seen in 40 years, I think I've seen two or three cancers among women in their, one 18-year-old and a couple in their 20s. Yeah. It happens, but it's exceedingly rare. Right. And you can almost bet the farm, as they say, that if it's a true lump, it's a fibroadenoma. Yeah. Because even cysts, right. which as I mentioned, are just balloons filled with fluid, mm -hmm. are uncommon in women in their 20s. Right. They start showing up in women in their 30s and, and increasing women in their 40s. Right. The other thing to realize, though, yeah. is that even when you see breast cancer in very young women, yeah. it's generally not genetically uh -huh. That's related. Right. I mean, it, maybe it is, but I've been told yeah. by the genetics people that, that uh, even though a woman Ashkenazi Jewish women, 2% of them have the, the gene that, uh -huh. that uh, increases the risk of developing breast cancer. But interestingly, most breast cancers in young, very young women, yeah, like uh, are just genetic. sporadic. And, yeah. and I think that's an important thing for your audience. High risk means you're at increased risk. Yeah. Okay. But the average woman has a significant risk of developing breast cancer. 75% of breast cancers, I'm going to say that again, 75% of breast cancers uh, occur in women 
who have none of the measurable risks. Right. Uh, 25% are in women who, like 10% of breast cancers are in women who have a BRCA1, mm-hmm. so-called BRCA, breast cancer 1, breast cancer 2 gene. Uh, they account for about 9 to 10% of breast yeah. cancers each year. And then another 15% are in women who have a family history but yeah. no known gene. Right. Uh, who have other risk factors, a high-risk biopsy in the past or something like that. Those women are at increased risk. We, ha- we don't know of anyone who is at no risk. Right. Okay. By, being woman and fem- by being female and getting older, you're, those are your two that, biggest those risk are the factors. Ma- those are the major risk factors. Right. And I think a lot of women don't realize yeah. that. Oh, I know one in my family had breast cancer. Right. That's good. Right. You're not at increased risk. Yeah. But you make up, women in your situation make up most of the breast cancer. Totally. And I think, and I, I can't prove this, uh-huh. this is my, my speculation, the vast majority of breast cancers are what are called sporadic. Mm-hmm. And that means we have no idea what mm-hmm. caused them. And the problem is that a breast cancer may be initiated, it's called started, mm-hmm. 5, 10, 15, 20 years before mm-hmm. it even becomes palpable. We right. can feel it. Right. Uh, so that, you know, if we say, well, here's a woman who's got breast cancer and she's uh, 42. Yeah. When did it start? You have no idea. Yeah. What was she doing when it started? You have no idea. Yeah. It could be a cosmic ray. I mean, this sounds yeah. a little weird. But it could literally be a cosmic ray that just happened to hit the wrong place in yeah. the DNA in one cell that triggered the start of uh, what will eventually become a breast cancer. So we don't know yeah. what causes most breast cancer. Just anecdotally, I feel like in our in our practice, we've seen a lot of clusters where there's a lot of young women in a, in a, that live nearby. And it always makes me wonder, is there something environmental that, I mean... Well, there was a huge cluster in um, on Long Island years right. ago as we say, Long Island. <laughs> uh, we don't say it. I'm from Boston. Um, and they, they looked into it. They thought it might be the high-tension electrical wire. The problem is there were a lot of women who moved into the area yeah. from elsewhere. Yeah. And were, you know, were diagnosed with breast cancer that probably developed it years ago. The problem is when you have statistical distributions, there's got to be some place that has the highest number. Right. There's got to be some place that has the lowest number. Right. Just on a bell-shaped sh- bell curve, statistical right. curve. So I think it's worth looking into, yeah. and I share your concern. What was it? Because I'm sure there are environmental yeah. factors. Because the incidence of breast cancer has been going up steadily yeah. since we've been keeping numbers, since right. 1940. Back in 1940, there were about 60 cancers per 100,000 women each year. And uh, I don't know, now we're up to 200 and something per yeah. hundred thousand. I would say there's something in the water. I don't know. Well, <laughs> it may well be in the water. <clears throat> right. We just don't know. Yeah. And uh, you can't stop drinking water. Right. That's right. Um, you could stop breathing the air, but that would shorten your yeah. life. It, it's, it's a problem, and nobody yeah. knows the answer. And that's because there's no way of measuring when somebody developed her breast cancer. Yeah. And there's so many conflicting factors, right? Well, yeah. I mean, it could have been what you breathed, ate, drank. Right. Uh, Beauty products. Who knows? Just walked out in the sun one day or didn't walk in the sun. Uh-huh. They have no idea. Right. So that leaves us with two possibilities. One is rely completely on treatment mm-hmm. and just wait until you can't ignore this thing that's growing in your breast. Yeah. Or find it early with the hope that you found it before it's become successfully spread somewhere else. Yeah. And then you can be cured. You know, one of my favorite um, recommendations that Society of Breast Imaging has come out with, was, which is all women, especially black women and Ashkenazi Jewish women, should be evaluated for risk factors no later than age 30. 
So you yep. can identify those young women that might be at increased risk and, you know, do supplemental or earlier screening. No, no, I, I completely, I, I mean, I don't know if I'm allowed to ask this, but I yeah. suspect you're Ashkenazi Jewish. I'm Ashkenazi Jewish, and I just turned 40, and, and I have, have BRCA family history. You do have it. I just took genetic screening. I'm okay, but I've got a lot. My, I'm intermediate risk. I've taken a whole risk panel. And I'm about 15 to 20 percent. Well, so you're at a little bit more risk than you were before you did that, but you were still at risk. Right, exactly. Because you're a woman. <clears throat> and uh, that's the problem. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have no problem with finding out your risk earlier. And if you're at high enough risk to start MRI screening. Right. Say, you know, although we still are worried a little bit about gadolinium accumulation, but right. assuming that's okay. Uh, MRI is clearly the best way to find breast yeah. cancer. I mean, if we could screen everyone with MRI, I'd say screen with yeah. MRI. But too expensive, we don't have the resources, and it's not going to happen. Right. So the next best way is uh, digital breast tomosynthesis, yeah. which is just a better management. But um, again, I think you're absolutely right. You'd like to know if you're at increased risk. Right. But the vast majority of women diagnosed with breast cancer are not, are not at increased yeah. risk. Ultrasound finds more cancers than just mammography alone. Totally. The problem is we haven't devised a method to make it efficient enough to offer it to everyone right. who needs it. I've been working for years. You know, I invented and developed digital breast homosynthesis. Even before that, I was leaning on the companies to put ultrasound in the mammography machine. Mm -hmm. So you know, if you could have your ultrasound and the mammogram you're reading oh, yeah. registered, be great. it would be much more efficient. You wouldn't be confused. Ultrasound finds more cancers than just mammography alone. So if you had them perfectly registered, yeah. which has been my goal for 30 years now, oh. uh, and the companies, uh -huh. interestingly enough, General Electric and Siemens, did build ultrasound units for mammography. Uh -huh. And what happened? They stopped developing it. And my suspicion is, how I could possibly imagine this, that it was the money. Right. <laughs> that they make more money right. selling separate units right. than they would with a combined unit. Yeah, that makes um, sense. So I'm, I'm actually working with a company in China. My my former uh, physicist who helped me develop tomosynthesis Incredible. is Chinese, and he's working in China. I'm hoping to get him to put ultrasound in the machine, and then we can spread it back to the United States. Somehow. I am here for it. I like yeah, it. <laughs> no, I, it's, I, I think more people should clamor to the companies yeah. and say, put, put ultrasound in the machine. Yeah. It and can be done. It's been done before. Yeah, I mean, I think all these imaging modalities have their place, but I want to just emphasize that nothing can replace mammography. Yeah, no, mammography is the only uh, imaging test that has been proven to save lives. Right. It's cost-effective and cost-beneficial yeah. if you really read carefully and know the data. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's available everywhere. Right, exactly. Uh, ultrasound is uh, much more operator-dependent. Yes. Uh, it's much more machine-dependent. It's it, it, it just... It's not standardized. It, it hasn't been shown to save, proven to yeah. save lives. I suspect it probably would if we could do it on a large scale, but it's not yeah. not ready for the whole country. And it can detect calcifications, right? So you uh, you need that mammogram also yeah. for that. Oh, yeah. to early DCIS. Absolutely. Yeah. So what are the biggest challenges for the field of breast imaging in the future? Well, there are real challenges and unfortunate challenges. Yeah. Again, when I started out in 1978, the debate about screening was just starting to go because we weren't screening. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until the mid-1980s when the Swedish two-county randomized control trial published their data that everyone realized we can save a lot of lives yeah. doing this, and that's when screening really began to take off. Mm -hmm. But even in the late 70s, as I said earlier, mm -hmm. people were arguing 
well, I mean, you know, you're just finding cancer earlier, you're not saving lives. No. The randomized controlled trials proved you saved lives. Yes. Um, but we've been having these debates now uh, for 40 plus years. I mean, m much of my career mm -hmm. has been spent arguing the same arguments yeah. and just getting more and more data that sh we've, 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 I had a list of, I think, 25 different pieces of misinformation. Uh -huh. You know, you can't find cancer early enough. Well, that's been proven wrong. You can't, it's not possible to screen enough women. Well, right. in the 1970s, there was a breast cancer detection demonstration project. They screened 275,000 women every year for five years efficiently. So we proved that was wrong. It's, it's not good in young women. Mm -hmm. The radiation is going to cause more cancer than a cure. We've scientifically proven that all these pieces of misinformation are not are incorrect. Yeah. It still goes on. Yeah. Now we're Constantly. dealing with what's called overdiagnosis. Oh, you're finding cancers that would have disappeared on their own. Hmm. This is an argument that's yeah, made in the most important journal, New England Journal of Medicine. Yeah. Has made uh, or allowed people to publish complete nonsense. Yeah. Um, no one has ever seen a man, unless you're going to tell me you have. No, I haven't. No one has ever seen a mammographically detected breast cancer disappear on yeah. There have been some clinically detected cancers, you know, lumps, yeah. that people claim went away. Right. Many of those women still died of their breast cancers, but they, it's a handful. Right. So if you're going to use the argument, you say, well, forget about lumps because they may go away, but right. a mammographically detected cancer is real. Right. Anyhow, people have been making ridiculous arguments, and yeah. this is what I've spent much of my senior years mm -hmm. uh, generating the arguments that say, no, this is scientifically incorrect. Right. A breast cancer, an invasive breast cancer, if you live long enough, will probably kill you. Right. Okay. Yeah, you may be cured by the treatment, or you may die of heart disease before right. your cancer kill, kills you, or you may be hit by a car. Right. But they're real cancers. Right. Uh, some take longer to kill than others. Uh, and then there's a pro process called ductal carcinoma in situ. Yes. DCIS for DCIS. your listeners. And these are a range of cancers, they're not all the same, that we are fairly certain are the precursor of an invasive cancer. The difference between DCIS and invasive is that breast cancer is thought to originate, as best we can tell, inside the milk ducts. Mm -hmm. The milk ducts are tubes that go from the lobules where milk is created, and you can think of a lobule as a cluster of grapes that are hollow, and during lactation, when a woman is nursing, the uh, hollow grapes secrete milk mm -hmm. and it goes down the ducts, the tubes, out to the nipple to feed the baby. It cancer is thought to begin somewhere where the lobule connects to the ducts. Mm -hmm. um, and if that's the case, and we think it is, uh, you can develop cancer in the lining of the duct in situ it's called mm -hmm. and ductal that is in the duct. Yeah. It can't kill you. Yeah. The only way cancer can kill you is if it spreads to another part of the body. In order to do that, right. it has to go outside the ducts because that's where the blood vessels and the lymphatics are, which let it go somewhere else. Right. And it's the go somewhere else metastatic disease that kills people. Right. So if you find it while it's still in the duct, it's completely curable. Yeah. The real debate is how many of these women need to be treated? Right. In the past, for any ductal carcinoma in situ, the breast was removed, mastectomy. Right. So for the earliest, earliest cancer, and we don't know which ductal carcinoma in situ will progress to invasion. Well, that's the point. You that's, can't, We yeah. can't tell. The higher the grade, there's grades one, two, and three. Right. Grade three is a pretty high risk. Yeah. We, we're pretty sure of that. 
grades one and two, I'm not so sure. Mm -hmm. They will, even grade one, there was a, a, a study published years ago where they found women who had what we would now call grade one ductal carcinoma in situ that had breast biopsies that were read as benign. Mm -hmm. So they were almost a natural experiment. They left the cancer, some of them had the yeah. cancer still in, and 20 to 25 years later, they died ultimately of invasive breast cancer uh -huh. in the same area, same breast Interesting. cancer. Interesting. So it's even, even low-grade DCIS, if you live long enough, yeah. and it becomes invasive, can still kill you. Right. But you may die of something else beforehand. Right. The point is, those are a separate category yeah. of cancer, and we should th think of them separately. Yeah. People have grouped low-grade DCIS, or DCIS, with small invasive cancers, and that's clouded the whole picture. Right. Small invasive cancers can kill oh, you. Yeah. Right. And they're bigger. Are, there are some <laughs> women who die of breast cancer. You can't. Eat, the cancer in the breast was so small. Yes. You can't find it on a mammogram, or if you do an autopsy and you dissect the breast, yeah. you can't find the cancer, it's so small. So this, it, it's like everything else is a bell-shaped curve. Right. There are some women at the bad end where they have tiny cancers and right. it still kills them. And there are some women at the other end who have huge cancers and they don't die from it. But most women are in the middle, in the middle where yeah. the bigger your cancer, the greater chance it's gonna kill you. Well, I think you nailed it on the head is that, you know, DCIS, if you catch it, you don't know who's gonna progress to invasive disease. And I think that's where the future is going. You know, the more individualized approach, like, being able to tell who of these sure. are going to progress. Well, in terms of where the future is going, there's a future of can we, I mean, mammography doesn't save everything. Mm -hmm. We don't find every cancer and we don't find every cancer early enough right. to save a woman's life. Tomosynthesis is a little bit better. Mm -hmm. If we could add ultrasound, that's even better. Mm -hmm. If we could do MRI, I think we could probably cure 75 to 80% of yeah. breast cancers before they kill anyone. That's yes. just a guess. Right. I haven't done the studies. But that's what we as imagers mm -hmm. need to be working on instead yeah. of fighting these stupid arguments which are not based in science. We should be, it took me 20 years that's true. to develop digital breast homosynthesis. Uh -huh. That's crazy. Right. I mean, I started working on it. I thought of it in 1978. We had to have digital images to yeah. do it. I, I did, we didn't start working on it until 1992. Right. And it wasn't FDA approved until 2013. Right. Uh, so we need to somehow improve our ability to develop new and better ways to find early breast cancer because the game's not, even if we start right. screening everyone 40 to yeah. 74, we can probably reduce deaths by 50%. Yeah. I mean, we've knocked them down by 40%, which to me is exactly. incredible. Because yeah. prior, prior to 1990, the death rate, the number of women dying per 100,000 women mm -hmm. from breast cancer was a flat line. It hadn't right. changed for going back to 1940. Uh -huh. Screening started in the mid-1980s, uh -huh. and by, in 1990, we suddenly saw the death rate starting to come down. Uh -huh. Sorry, this way for you. Starting to come down. And it's continued to go down, I believe, as we've gotten better and better at finding cancers. Therapy has gotten better. Yeah. But the only well. way you cure breast cancer yeah. is to find it early. You can delay death. Mm -hmm. You've gotten better, delay, and that's important. Yeah, totally. Uh, <clears throat> but if you, want, if you want to cure somebody, you got to find it before it's successfully metastatic. And that's, I think, where we need to go. Yeah. So where do I, I think the, the easiest thing right now is put ultrasound in the tomo. Uh -huh. That would be a huge step. Oh, yeah. I think looking at contrast enhanced mammography is okay. Again, when you have to inject people, that can be problematic. Yeah. So the same thing with MRI, but we need to come up with uh, less expensive, still as good uh -huh. uh, breast MRI to make it accessible to more women.
Well, you guys, you, you yeah. says my cousin Vinny would say, <laughs> need to get off the stick and start doing this. All right, stuff. there you go. Figure you, it out. <laughs> I want to go. Instead, go. Of, instead of doing all these blogs, get out there and do some work. <laughs> Yeah. Hey, these women need need this information. Uh, no, I, I appreciate yeah. that. No, um, and that's for it's very important that you are getting yeah. the information out because unfortunately, a number of their doctors, their primary care doctors, don't know anything about this. Oh yeah. And and you have you have to, you know, understand that a yeah. primary care doctor, who say let's say has a, a, a takes care of a thousand women a year. Yeah. Maybe sees five breast cancers a year in in her own whole practice. Totally. So she's not she listens to what her societies say. And right. Unfortunately. Groups like the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force and the American College of Physicians, and now even the American Cancer Society, yeah. which has gone political, um, come up with nonsense. Yeah. I mean, their arguments, wait until 50 to reduce overdiagnosis. Well, the only way, if, if there are cancers that aren't real, yeah. this is if, and uh -huh. it's not true, but if there were cancers that aren't real, and you wait until 50, the only way you reduce finding those is if they go away, between yeah. 40 and 50. But no one's ever seen one go away. Right. So they're going to be there at age 50. Right. So you're going to overdiagnose them at age 50. So and, the, and the arguments for starting at 50 is like that the woman have anxiety over a false positive biopsy or like the needing a biopsy that isn't cancer. And that is just patriarchal. And I Well, it's matriarchal it. too because yeah. there are women who who teach that. Yeah. Oh, we don't want to upset the poor dears. Right. I, mean, I agree with you. I think that's, that's outrageous. Yeah. And, and, if you believe in informed decision making, yeah. which primary care doctors say, then give them the information. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> They're making the decision for you. When the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force says wait, you can wait until 50 and start every two years, that becomes law. Right. So you, the insurance companies don't have to cover it. Right. So they're making the decision for women, not informing them. I always tell women, you know, there's a, there's complex exists. It's 40 to 50, you know, but 40 at every year saves the most lives. I think that's... Everyone, even the U.S. Preventive I Services know, Task agree. Force agrees with that. Yeah. They just don't tell women. And they don't tell women, yeah, you, know, you can wait until 50, but 100,000 of you will die right. unnecessarily. They don't tell yeah. you that. They, women just need to be informed of what the risk is and what their personal values are. Switching topics a little bit. So in addition to inventing and helping invent an tomosynthesis, you also invented the Copens wire, okay, which has been used for needle localization for the past few decades. So you I'm made breast conservation therapy possible, well, essentially. I, I, I'll take credit. <laughs> I'll give uh, you that. Now, many centers are transitioning to wireless localization. What Can you speak to the continued value of wireless? Well, I have to say up front that I have a conflict because I still do get some royalties uh -huh. for the Copan's wire. Just uh, for people who don't know, when I started out in uh -huh. 1978, uh, they were just taking, if I, if I told the surgeon, and in those days they didn't believe in mammography, I said, well, she's got something in the upper outer quadrant of her right breast. Mm -hmm. He'd say, oh, I'll just take out the upper outer, I'll, I'll right. remove the upper outer quadrant of the breast. Right. And I was very young, and these were old surgeons and uh -huh. I said I, I guess okay uh -huh. and and when a surgeon did that and missed the cancer right took out a huge part of the breast I realized I gotta you can't doing, do this anymore doing a disservice I gotta guide the surgeon yeah. so in those days we were putting a needle in the breast and by the time the patient got to the operating room and they cleaned the breast off for surgery the needle fell out uh -huh. and the surgeon didn't know where the lesion was they can't feel them They're right so small it right. was incredibly inaccurate I was uh, ordered <laughs> by my Senior surgeon, I want you to start using these wires. I said, well, I can't do it unless I can position it very accurately. Uh -huh. So that got me trying to figure out how to, if you take a wire and bend it back in a hook and then mm -hmm. push it through a needle, yeah. it doesn't open again. It just uh -huh. stays bent, so it won't hold in the tissue. 
So I had to figure out how I could take a wire, push it through a needle, and have it open into a hook again, uh -huh. so I could position the needle perfectly, yeah. and then leave the hook where I wanted it. Right. So I played with wire. I had a friend, a colleague of mine, got all those different. There's different kinds of wire. Some wow. of them are very soft. Some of them are very uh, rigid and will break. And I got the right combination and realized almost by accident <laughs> that if I made it into a loop at the end, uh -huh. then that would become a spring. So I could bring the short part of the hook against the long wire, push it through a needle, and, and when it came out. out the end, it would open up again. Uh -huh. And that was like the uh -huh. aha <laughs> moment, as they say. And in fact, that's when I finally realized that one of the things that gives me my jollies uh -huh. is how to figure out how to do things better. I love that. So I developed the, developed the wire, which I am very pleased, allowed us to be very aggressive in going after small cancers because yeah. we weren't taking out a quarter of the breast ridiculously. What I'm a little concerned about today is, and, and we try, I tried different ways to make it better. I, I thought of putting a magnet on the wire mm -hmm. and then using a compass. You know, mm -hmm. Back in those days, the electronics were... Not far off magnet. from what we do now. Well, no, right? someone has now done that. Uh, the problem is that the wire uh, costs about $30. Yeah. And that's overpriced. Uh -huh. I mean, it costs about 10 cents to make, I think. I right. It, it's way overpriced to begin with. But all these new systems are 10 times as expensive right. as the wire. Now, if you're doing what some people are doing, which is putting in one of these markers at a convenient day for the patient, yeah. and she can go home with it, and when she comes in, she just goes to the operating room, the surgeon follows it down. Yeah. That's fine. Of course, you've made her come in twice. twice. Right. Um, but a lot of people are still putting in these markers yeah. the day of surgery. So they're, they're charging 10, uh, 10 times as much, uh -huh. literally. I mean, it's, I think the cheapest is $300. Yeah. So 30 versus 300 is 10 yeah. times. 10 times as much to do what you could do with a wire. Right. I still think that there is a role for wire localization. Well, I think it's the best way to do things. <laughs> 100%. Somewhere in between is probably the truth. Yeah. I, as a mentor, what advice do you have for trainees considering a field in a career in breast imaging? Well, I would say consider Korean breast imaging because it's one of the places in um, imaging, I guess we call it imaging now, not just radiology, uh, where you're the only one who can do it. Yeah. Uh, no one else can save lives the way we can. Uh, and there's great opportunity to do better. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, when I started out, we weren't even allowed to talk to patients. We were just, we read the mammograms. Wow. Tell, tell the doctor and the doctor would tell the patient, even though we're doctors, mm -hmm. tell a primary good doctor. Now it's way different. Oh, yeah. Now, you know, I think patients expect us to talk to them uh, and and uh, and deal with them and, and help them. Totally. And, uh, you know, I, and the other thing is it's a field where you can really become expert. Oh, yeah. Uh, a general radiologist can be good at mm -hmm. a lot of things. But it's not possible to keep up with all the. I mean, it's like a primary care doctor. Yeah. Can't know everything. Yeah. Uh, certainly doesn't know much about mammography screening. Yeah. Uh, and so it's a field where uh, we can really make a difference as individuals. You know, okay. uh, what we do is life saving. And, I agree. And uh, and it's a huge problem. I mean, yeah. it's the most common non-skin cancer in women. Yes. And uh, if you don't count lung cancer. It's the leading cause of cancer death among women. Definitely. So, and you're using everything. You're using MRI, using ultrasound, using uh, it's a biopsy biopsies, technique. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I just, to me, it, it, it's it's very, very important field. Yes. And uh, I would urge young 
physicians to get involved in this. I couldn't agree more. It's been very fulfilling. But we're a little biased. Yeah. <laughs> but, and, yeah. but evidence-based bias. Yeah. <laughs> and last question, what do you do for fun? What do I do for fun? Uh, well, I, uh, I garden. I mean, I, I grow stuff. Uh, I build stuff. I, I, uh, I built a lot of things in my house. I, we have a summer place uh, where I built a deck. And a, oh wow! I, I like I like to. You built a wire. Problems. You solve problems. <laughs> I came up with a better way to hang tools up. I love that. Uh, but I'm trying to get it patented, so I can't talk to you. About it. <laughs> and um, uh, I just came up with another a, a way to store uh, things. And the irony, just to complain is that I actually went into medicine. My father was an obstetrician and gynecologist, mm -hmm. and I wanted to have nothing to do with that, because uh -huh. I'd wake up as a kid and he'd be going off in the night. Uh -huh. um, but when I got to my junior year in, in college, I said, what am I going to do with my life? And um, I said, well, you know, I love science, but I'm not smart enough to be a scientist. Uh -huh. But medicine has the science, mm -hmm. uh, and you're doing something good for people. Definitely. So I thought, I'll go into medicine because I can do both those things, and the good news is I'll never have to write. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, I ended up... Funny uh, how that works out. That didn't work out. Yeah. I, write, I, I write every day and hate every minute of it, but <laughs> there are still people who are trying to deny women access to screening, yeah. and I think it's important that those of us who know the data need to keep explaining, no, you're wrong. We well, save lives, and... Uh, we're doing way more good than any harm. I, this is our platform, and we really speak to young women. So this has been a complete honor speaking with you today. And I appreciate it. I have to point out to you that only YouTube could have the title. The booby ducks? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not even repeating it. I know. You won't even say you, it. Sir. Well, what's interesting along those lines yeah. is that one of the reasons I think breast cancer was such a, a – it's still not great, but it's such a disaster before I really got started. There's no joke in this. Yeah, this uh, is not sexual or jokey. Yeah, no, no, like, this, this could kill you. Yeah, so, right. so that's you know that's yeah. where I, I grew up. We take we run with the name the Booby Docs, and I'm glad that's we are right. in a better right. time. I just I will never repeat the name. <laughs> it's okay. Well, we appreciate you so much for coming on our podcast. Well, I appreciate you having me, and I hope it does some good. Until next time, let's be breasties. If you like what you heard or learned something new, please make sure to leave us a five-star review and subscribe. I've literally always wanted to say that and share with your friends. Make sure you check back every two weeks for more great content. We've got some incredible guests coming up and you won't want to miss them. And follow the Booby Docs across all social media platforms for more of the breast information.